Chapter Eighteen of the Midnight Queen. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marianne. The Midnight Queen by May Agnes Fleming. Chapter Eighteen: The Interview. I am not aware whether fainting was as much the fashion among the fair sex in the days, or rather the nights, of which I have the honour to hold forth, as at the present time. But I am inclined to think not, from the simple fact that Leoline, though like John Bunyan, grievously troubled and tossed about in her mind, did nothing of the kind. For the first few moments she was altogether too stunned by the suddenness of the shock to cry out or make the least resistance, and was conscious of nothing but of being rapidly borne along in somebody's arms. When this hazy view of things passed away, her new sensation was the intensely uncomfortable one of being on the verge of suffocation. She made one frantic but futile effort to free herself and scream for help, but the strong arms held her with most loving tightness, and her cry was drowned in the hot atmosphere within the shawl, and never passed beyond it. Most assuredly, Leoline would have been smothered then and there, had their journey been much longer. But fortunately for her, it was only the few yards between her house and the river. She knew she was then carried down some steps, and she heard the dip of the oars in the water, and then her bearer paused, and went through a short dialogue with somebody else. With Count Lestrange, she rather felt than knew, for nothing was audible but a low murmur. The only word she could make out was a low, emphatic, remember, in the Count's voice and then she knew she was in a boat, and that it was shoved off and moving down the rapid river. The feeling of heat and suffocation was dreadful, and as her abductor placed her on some cushions, she made another desperate but feeble effort to free herself from the smothering shaw. But a hand was laid lightly on hers, and a voice interposed. Lady, it is quite useless for you to struggle, as you are irrevocably in my power. But if you will promise faithfully not to make an outcry, and will submit to be blindfolded, I shall remove this oppressive muffling from your head. Tell me if you will promise. He had partly raised the shawl, and a gush of free air came revivingly in, and enabled Leoline to gasp out a faint, I promise. As she spoke it, it was lifted off altogether, and she caught one bright fleeting glimpse of the river, sparkling and silvery in the moonlight of the bright blue sky, gemmed with countless stars, and of some one by her side in the dress of a court page, whose face was perfectly unknown to her. The next instant a bandage was bound tightly over her eyes, excluding every ray of light, while the strange voice again spoke apologetically. "'Pardon, lady, but it is my orders. I am commanded to treat you with every respect, but not to let you see where you are born to.' "'But what right does Count Lestrange have to commit this outrage?' began Leoline, almost as imperiously as Miranda herself, and making use of her tongue, like a true woman, the very first moment it was at her disposal. "'How dare he carry me off in this atrocious way! Whoever you are, sir, if you have the spirit of a man, you will bring me directly back to my own house.' "'I am very sorry, lady, but I have received orders that must be obeyed.' You must come with me, but you need fear nothing. You will be as safe and secure as in your own home. Secure enough, 
"'No doubt,' said Leoline bitterly. "'I never did like Count Lestrong, but I never knew he was a coward and a villain till now.' Her companion made no reply to this forcible address, and there was a moment's indignant silence on Leoline's part, broken only by the dip of the oars and the rippling of the water. Then— "'Will you not tell me, at least, where you are taking me to?' haughtily demanded Leoline. "'Lady, I cannot. It was to prevent you knowing that you have been blindfolded.' "'Oh, your master has a faithful servant, I see. How long am I to be kept a prisoner?' "'I do not know.' "'Where is Count Lestrange?' "'I cannot tell.' "'Where am I to see him?' "'I cannot say.' "'Huh!' said Leoline, with infinite contempt, and turning her back upon him she relapsed into gloomy silence. It had all been so sudden, and had taken her so much by surprise, that she had not had time to think of the consequences until now. But now they came upon her with a rush, and with dismal distinctness. The most distinct among all was, what would Sir Norman say? Of course, with all a lover's impatience— he would be at his post by sunrise, would come to look for his bride, and would find himself cold. By that time she would be far enough away, perhaps a melancholy corpse, and at this dreary passage in her meditations Leoline sighed profoundly, and he would never know what had become of her, or how much and how long she had loved him. And this hateful Count Lestrange, what did he intend to do with her? Perhaps go so far as to make her marry him, and imprison her with the rest of his wives, for Leoline was prepared to think the very worst of the Count, and had not the slightest doubt that he had already a harem full of abducted wives, somewhere. But no, he never could do that. He might do what he liked with weaker minds, but she never would be a bride of his, while the plague or poison was to be had in London, and with this invincible determination rooted fixedly, not to say obstinately, in her mind, she was nearly pitched overboard by the boat suddenly landing at some unexpected place. A little natural scream of terror was repressed on her lips by a hand being placed over them, and the determined but perfectly respectful tones of the person beside her speaking. "'Remember your promise, lady, and do not make a noise. We have arrived at our journey's end, and if you will take my arm, I will lead you along instead of carrying you.' Leoline was rather surprised to find the journey so short, but she arose directly, with silence and dignity, at least with as much of the latter commodity as could be reasonably expected, considering that boats on water are rather unsteady things to be dignified in, and was led gently and with care out of the swaying vessel and up another flight of stairs. Then, in a few moments, she was conscious of passing from the free night air into the closer atmosphere of a house and in going through an endless labyrinth of corridors, and passages, and suites of rooms, and flights of stairs, until she became so extremely tired that she stopped with spirited abruptness, and in the plainest possible English gave her conductor to understand that they had gone about far enough for all practical purposes. To which that patient and respectful individual replied that he was glad to inform her that they had but a few more steps to go which the next moment proved to be true, for he stopped and announced that their promenade was over for the night. "'And I suppose I may have the use of my eyes at last?' inquired Leoline, 
with more haughtiness than Sir Norman could have believed possible, so gentle a voice could have expressed. For reply, her companion rapidly untied the bandage, and withdrew it with a flourish. The dazzling brightness that burst upon her so blinded her that for a moment she could distinguish nothing, and when she looked round to contemplate her companion, she found him hurriedly making his exit, and securely locking the door. The sound of the key turning in the lock gave her a most peculiar sensation, which none but those who have experienced it can properly understand. It is not the most comfortable feeling in the world to know you are a prisoner, even if you have no key turned upon you but the weather, and your jailer be a high east wind and lashing rain. Leoline's prison and jailer were something worse, and, for the first time, a chill of fear and dismay crept icily to the core of her heart. But Leoline had something of Miranda's courage, as well as her looks and temper, so she tried to feel as brave as possible, and not to think of her unpleasant predicament while there remained anything else to think about. Perhaps she might escape, too, and as this notion struck her, she looked with eager anxiety, not unmixed with curiosity, at the place where she was. By this time her eyes had been accustomed to the light, which proceeded from a great antique lamp of bronze, pendant by a brass chain from the ceiling, and she saw she was in a moderately sized and by no means splendid room. But what struck her most was that everything had a look of age about it, from the glittering oak beams of the floor to the faded ghostly hangings on the wall. There was a bed at one end, a great spectral arc of a thing, like a mausoleum, with drapery as old and spectral as that on the walls, and in which she no more could have lain than in a moth-eaten shroud. The seats and the one table the room held were of the same ancient and weird pattern, and the sight of them gave her a shivering sensation, not unlike an og chill. There was but one door, a huge structure, with shining panels, securely locked, and escape from that quarter was utterly out of the question. There was one window, hung with dark curtains of tarnished embroidery, but in pushing them aside she met only a dull blank of unlighted glass, for the shutters were firmly secured without. Altogether she could not form the slightest idea where she was, and with a feeling of utter despair she sat down on one of the queer old chairs with much the same feeling as if she were sitting on a tomb. What would Sir Norman say? Would he ever think of her when he found her gone? And what was destined to be her fate in this dreadful out-of-the-way place? She would have cried, as most of her sex would be tempted to do in such a situation, but that her dislike and horror of Count Lestrange was a good deal stronger than her grief, and turned her tears to sparks of indignant fire. Never, never, never would she be his wife. He might kill her a thousand times if he liked, and she wouldn't yield an inch. She did not mind dying in a good cause. She could do it but once. And with Sir Norman despising her, as she felt he must do, when he found her run away, she rather liked the idea than otherwise. Mentally she bade adieu to all her friends before beginning to prepare for her melancholy fate, to her handsome lover, to his gallant friend Amistron, to her poor nurse Prudence, and to her mysterious visitor La Masque. La Masque. Ah, that name awoke a new chord of recollection. The casket, 
She had it with her yet. Instantly, everything was forgotten but it and its contents, and she placed a chair directly under the lamp, drew it out, and looked at it. It was a pretty little billet itself, with its polished ivory surface and shining clasps of silver. But the inside had far more interest for her than the outside, and she fitted the key and unlocked it with a trembling hand. It was lined with azure velvet, wrought with silver thread, in dainty wreaths of water-lilies, and in the bottom, neatly folded, lay a sheet of fool's cap. She opened it with nervous haste. It was a common sheet enough, stamped with a fool's cap and bells, that showed it belonged to Cromwell's time. It was closely written, in a light, fair hand, and bore the title, Leoline's History. Leoline's hand trembled so with eagerness that she could scarcely hold the paper, but her eye rapidly ran from line to line, and she stopped not till she reached the end. While she read, her face alternatively flushed and paled, her eyes dilated, her lips parted, and before she finished it there came over all a look of the most unutterable horror. It dropped from her powerless fingers as she finished, and she sank back in her chair with such a ghastly paleness that it seemed absolutely like the lividness of death. A sudden and startling noise awoke her from her trance of horror. Someone trying to get in at the window. The chill of terror it sent through every vein acted as a sort of counter-irritant to the other feeling, and she sprang from her chair and turned her face fearfully toward the sounds. But in all her terror she did not forget the mysterious sheet of foolscap, which lay looking up at her on the floor, and she snatched it up and thrust it and the casket out of sight. Still the sounds went on, but softly and cautiously, and at intervals, as if the worker were afraid of being heard. Leoline went back, step by step, to the other extremity of the room, with her eyes still fixed on the window, and on her face a white terror that left her perfectly colorless. Who could it be? Not Count Lestrong, for he would surely not need to enter his own house like a burglar. Not Sir Norman Kingsley, for he could certainly not find out about her abduction and her prison so soon, and she had no other friends in the whole wide world to trouble themselves about her. There was one, but the idea of ever seeing her again was so unspeakably dreadful that she would rather have seen the most horrible spectre her imagination could conjure up than that tall, graceful, rich-robed form. Still, the noises perseveringly continued. There was a sound of withdrawing bolts, and then a pale ray of moonlight shot between the parted curtains, showing the shutters had been opened. Whiter and whiter Leoline grew, and she felt herself growing cold and rigid with mortal fear. Softly the window was raised. A hand stole in and parted the curtains and a pale face and two great dark eyes wandered slowly round the room, and rested at last on her, standing, like a galvanized corpse, as far from the window as the wall would permit. The hand was lifted in a warning gesture, as if to enforce silence. The window was raised still higher. A figure, lithe and agile as a cat, sprang lightly into the room, and standing with his back to her, reclosed the shutters, reshut the window, and redrew the curtains, before taking the trouble to turn round. This discreet little maneuver, 
which showed her visitor was human, and gifted with human prudence, reassured Leoline a little, and, to judge by the reverse of the medal, the nocturnal intruder was nothing very formidable after all. But the stranger did not keep her long in suspense. While she stood gazing at him, as if fascinated, he turned round, stepped forward, took off his cap, and made her a courtly bow, and then straightening himself up, prepared with great coolness to scrutinize and be scrutinized. Well might they look at each other, for the two faces were perfectly the same, and each one saw himself and herself as others saw them. There was the same coal-black, curling hair, the same lustrous eyes, the same clear, colorless complexion, the same delicate, perfect features. Nothing was different but the costume and the expression. The latter was essentially different, for the young ladies betrayed amazement, terror, doubt, and delight all at once, while the young gentleman's was a grand, careless surprise, mixed with just a dash of curiosity. He was the first to speak, and after they had stared at each other for the space of five minutes, he described a graceful sweep with his hand, and held forth in the following strain. "'I greatly fear, fair Leoline, that I have startled you by my sudden and surprising entrance.' and if I have been the cause of a moment's alarm to one so perfectly beautiful, I shall hate myself for ever after. If I could have got in any other way, rest assured I would not have risked my neck, and your peace of mind, by such a suspicious means of ingress as the window. But if you will take the trouble to notice, the door is thick, and I am composed of too solid flesh to whisk through the keyhole, so I had to make my appearance the best way I could. "'Who are you?' faintly asked Leoline. "'Your friend, fair lady,' answered Norman Kingsley's. Hubert looked to see Leoline start and blush, and was deeply gratified to see her do both, and her whole pretty countenance became alive with new-born hope, as if that name were a magic talisman of freedom and joy. "'What is your name, and who are you?' she inquired in a breathless sort of way that made Hubert look at her a moment in calm astonishment. "'I have told you, your friend,' Christened at some remote period, Hubert. For further particulars, apply to the Earl of Rochester, whose page I am. The Earl of Rochester's page, she repeated, in the same quick, excited way, that surprised and rather lowered her in that good youth's opinion, for giving way to any feeling so plebeian. It is. It must be the same. I have no doubt of it, said Hubert. The same what? Did you not come from France? "'From Dion recently,' went on Leoline, rather inoppositely, as it struck her hearer. "'Certainly I come from Dion. Had I the honour of being known to you there?' "'How strange! How wonderful!' said Leoline, with a paling cheek and quickened breathing. "'How mysterious these things turn out! I thank heaven that I have found some one to love at last!' This speech, which was Greek, algebra, high Dutch or thereabouts, to Master Hubert, caused him to stare to such an extent that when he came to think of it afterward, positively shocked him. The two great, wondering dark eyes transfixing her with so much amazement brought Leoline to a sense of her talking unfathomable mysteries, quite incomprehensible to her handsome auditor. She looked at him with a smile, held out her hand, and Hubert received a strange little electric thrill to see that her eyes were full of tears. He took the hand and raised it to his lips, wondering if the young lady, struck by his good looks, 
had conceived a rash and inordinate attack of love at first sight, and was about to offer herself to him, and discard Sir Norman for ever. From this speculation the sweet voice aroused him. "'You have told me who you are. Now, do you know who I am?' "'I hope so, fairest Leoline. I know you are the most beautiful lady in England, and to-morrow will be called Lady Kingsley.' "'I am something more,' said Leoline, holding his hand between hers and bending near him. "'I am your sister.' The Earl of Rochester's page must have had good blood in his veins, for never was their duke, grandee, or peer of the realm more radically and unaffectedly nonchalant than he. To this unexpected announcement he listened with most dignified and well-bred composure, and in his secret heart, or rather vanity, more disappointed than otherwise to find his first solution of her tenderness a great mistake. Leoline held his hand tight in hers, and looked with loving and tearful eyes in his face. "'Dear Hubert, you are my brother, my long unknown brother, and I love you with my whole heart.' "'Am I?' said Hubert. "'I dare say I am, for they all say we look as much alike as two peas. I am excessively delighted to hear it, and to know that you love me. Permit me to embrace my new relative.' With which the court-page kissed Leoline with emphasis— while she scarcely knew whether to laugh, cry, or be provoked at his composure. On the whole she did a little of all three, and pushed him away with a half-pout. "'You insensible mortal! How can you stand there and hear that you have found a sister with so much indifference?' "'Indifferent? Not I. You have no idea how wildly excited I am,' said Hubert, in a voice not betokening the slightest emotion. "'How did you find it out, Leoline?' "'Never mind. I shall tell you that again. You don't doubt it, I hope.' "'Of course not. I knew from the first moment I set eyes on you, that if you were not my sister, you ought to be. I wish you'd tell me all the particulars, Leoline.' "'I shall do so as soon as I am out of this. But how can I tell you anything here?' "'That's true,' said Hubert, reflectively. "'Well, I'll wait. Now, don't you wonder how I found you out and came here?' "'Indeed I do. How was it, Hubert?' "'Oh, well, I don't know as I can altogether tell you. But you see, Sir Norman Kingsley, being possessed of an inspiration that something was happening to you, came to your house a short time ago, and, as he suspected, discovered that you were missing. I met him there, rather depressed in his mind about it, and he told me, beginning the conversation, I must say, in a very excited manner,' said Hubert, parenthetically, as memory recalled the furious shaking he had undergone. And he told me he fancied you were abducted, and by one Count Lestrong. Now I had a hazy idea who Count Lestrong was, and where he would be most apt to take you to, and so I came here, and after some searching, more inquiring, and a few unmitigated falsehoods, you'll regret to hear, discovered you were locked up in this place, and succeeded in getting in through the window. Sir Norman is waiting for me in a state of distraction." So now, having found you, I will go and relieve his mind by reporting accordingly. "'And leave me here,' cried Leoline, in a fright. "'And in the power of Count Lestrange? Oh, no, no, you must take me with you, Hubert.' "'My dear Leoline, it is quite impossible to do it without help, and without a ladder. I will return to Sir Norman, and when the darkness comes that precedes day-dawn, 
we will raise the ladder to your window and try to get you out. Be patient. Only wait an hour or two, and then you will be free. But, oh, Hubert, where am I? What dreadful place is this? Why, I do not know that this is a very dreadful place, and most people consider it a sufficiently respectable house. But still, I would rather see my sister anywhere else than in it, and will take the trouble of kidnapping her out of it as quickly as possible. But, Hubert, tell me, do tell me, who is Count Lestrong? Hubert laughed. Cannot, really, Leoline, at least not until tomorrow, and you are Lady Kingsley. But what if he should come here to-night? I do not think there is much danger of that, but whether he does or not, rest assured, you shall be free to-morrow, and at all events, it is quite impossible for you to escape with me now, and even as it is, I run the risk of being detected and made a prisoner myself. You must be patient and wait, Leoline, and trust to Providence, and your brother Hubert. I must, I suppose, said Leoline, sighing, and you cannot take me away until day-dawn? Quite impossible, and then all this drapery of yours will be ever so much in the way. Would you object to garments like these? pointing to his doublet and hose. If you would not, I think I could procure you a fit-out. But I should, though, said Leoline, with spirit, and most decidedly, too. I shall wear nothing of the kind, Sir Page. Every one to her fancy, said Hubert, with a French shrug, and my pretty sister shall have hers, in spite of earth, air, fire, and water. And now, fair Leoline, for a brief time, adieu, and au revoir. You will not fail me, exclaimed Leoline, earnestly clasping her hands. If I do, it shall be the last thing I will fail on earth, for if I am alive by to-morrow morning, Leoline shall be free. And you will be careful. You will both be careful. Excessively careful. Now then. The last two words were addressed to the window, which he noiselessly opened as he spoke. Leoline caught a glimpse of the bright, free moonlight, and watched him with desperate envy, but the next moment the shutters were closed, and Hubert and the moonlight were both gone. End of chapter 18